Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm joined by psychologist Kimberly Wilson, who specialises in whole body mental health. We're going to talk about why we shouldn't separate the mind and the body when it comes to the likes of nutrition, physical activity, to keep ourselves in the best mental and creative state. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing? I hope you're well. I hope things are good. I hope you're managing these dark nights well. As we edge into November, it's that time of year. There's a lot of traps for these kind of brains that a lot of us creative industry folk tend to have, which are sensitive, curious, introspective brains, and they can lead us into certain pickles, shall we say. And this seasonal shift, I find, when things aren't good, when we hear the news, when you know the dark nights kick in and there's storm after storm, you could forgive anyone for falling into uh, negative thought spirals. And that's why last year and now this year, I am trying to use this podcast to provide some tools to help us out of those ruts. So before I get any deeper, I just want to say a big thank you to the founding sponsor of the show, Illustration X. You can check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios. Now, illustrationx.com, they've been here since day one and continue to provide a solid supporting for this podcast so you've probably seen the kickstarter um i haven't shut up about it for the last two weeks at the time of listening if you're getting this show on tuesday it'll be two weeks since and i've passed the 70 percent mark it's mind-blowing thank you guys overwhelming support really vital valuable heartwarming stuff because as you'll know i've been doing this for seven years i've been having these conversations formally for 10 since i started the campaign with calm exploring the emotional benefits of artistic expression back in 2013 and that decade has been distilled into one body of work which is the creative condition book it's an evolution of this podcast it's the beginning of a broader ecosystem including the youtube channel through which i want to elevate the, the standing of creativity in our society that's here in the uk that's all over the place i want to work hard and partner with the right organizations who can help the people who are going to benefit from creativity the most and i believe that's every human so if you want to get behind that, if you want to check out the book, then please do now. It's on the Kickstarter. You only have to go to any of my social media channels to find the channel and support. You can pledge. You can get your copy of the book right now. Um, it's going to be landing on your desk through your letterbox if, you're, if you've pledged come March next year, optimistically February. Um, a lot to be done. Got to be typeset yet. There's a proofread to happen, but it's essentially written edited the cover is designed and i've got the printer lined up so it's exciting times 
Um, I'm also going to be speaking at Off Festival 2024, live conversation with Stefan Sagmeister. We're going again for anyone who heard episode 199 where I interviewed Stefan about his brand new book, Now Is Better. Um, we're going again at Off 2024 on the Friday night, April 5th. Very excited, slightly nervous. Got to get my ducks in a row for that one. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Uh, thank you to everyone, like I said, who's pledged to the Kickstarter. Please do consider doing it to get this thing over the line and get this book funded. And in return, you will get your first edition copy and a credit, which is going to be in there forever, saying thank you, cheers, you are a part of this, you've made it possible. So today I'm talking to Kimberly Wilson. This is the first of two episodes I'm doing around nutrition. The second one is with Zuzana Kowalska a microbiologist, I believe, who is specialising in the gut microbiome using artificial intelligence to track the data of it. Um, it's deep stuff, but it's really valuable stuff. This is not just about eat healthier, feel better. This is about the science. This is about why it's critical to our creativity to feed this organism that is our human body and the brain in particular the right stuff to get optimal creativity. So that's a thought process that I started to get into more when I had a personal low last year, which I've mentioned several times now on the podcast. It wasn't quite depression, but I was very down. I was very entering a lot of negative thought spirals about the climate crisis and about other big news headlines. And as a part of my attempt to heal from that, I wanted to study the brain more. I wanted to find out why I was having these primitive responses to things that my brain considered a threat. And once you start to learn about that, it really gives you a framework that helps you to overcome the pitfalls of a sensitive mind, which are we soak up our environment with greater richness than less sensitive people. And the downside to that is it's painful at times. It's really painful. And that's where I was at. But as part of that, I really wanted to learn more about my nutrition. So my first guest is today is Kimberly Wilson. And Kimberly is awesome. You must read her book, Unprocessed, Why the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis. And it's big, big stuff. So Kimberly was on the Great British Bake Off. She loves to bake cakes and she was on there early on in one of the earlier seasons. And when I came across this book, much like when I came across Jen Graneman's Sensitive, The Power of a Thoughtful Mind in an Overwhelming World, my head fell off it was like whoa here we go here's another here's another essential book for learning about my food about what i need to be eating more so than i currently know and it's helped so much i've eradicated the the kind of essential need for a nap every day and it's not like i don't indulge in that particular treat but i don't need to do it anymore i'm bouncing it's really, really helped my mental state and my creativity. So that's why I wanted to bring Kimberly to you on this podcast. And also Zuzana in a forthcoming episode. We're going to be specifically talking about the gut microbiome, the link between gut health, brain health, and mental energy and creativity. Fascinating stuff to me. I hope it's going to be the same to you. Big thank you again to the supporters of the show, Illustration X. Please do get behind the Kickstarter. I'm not going to shut up about it until it's over the line. You can get your copy of the book. Come on. I'm not asking for handouts here. I'm asking for you to buy the book up front so I can make it. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Kimberly Wilson. Without getting too deep too early with this, <laughs> you know, it almost it was both good and bad to hear in your book the sort of crystallization of my suspicions in in as far as, you know, the world we live in the capitalist society and the vested interests and the huge barriers that places on 
information about mm -hmm. good nutrition and about the links to mental health. Um, so I thought a nice starting point, if you wouldn't mm -hmm. mind just giving us a little whistle stop of what you do, but also about whole body mental health, which I think is a wonderful way to put it. Sure, thank you. Yeah, so I am a chartered psychologist and I trained uh, as a counselling psychologist, which means I trained in a range of modalities. So um, CBT and what we would consider kind of psychodynamic or the older Freudian inspired way of, of thinking and person-centered. And I have a master's degree in nutrition. And so what I do is really think about the interaction of those two things of psychology and food. And so part of that is about the impact of food and nutrients on brain development, brain structure, its function, mental health. But I also uh, try to help people think about their relationship with food, what food says to them, how they think about it, because it's incredibly complex. And we think of food as this kind of ubiquitous, all around a substance that everybody's an expert in, but it's it's deeply irrational, our food choices, our relationships with food. And it actually takes a lot of thinking and thinking through for people who have difficulty or complexities around it. Um, and then from that, uh, I really started thinking about the contradiction and the idea that I, I did you know, over nearly a decade's worth of training um, to do the job that I do. And we're supposed to be experts in psychology and, and the brain and helping people stay well. And actually what we didn't get taught is how to keep the brain healthy. How, do, you know, let's start at the foundations. What is a healthy brain? How do we get one? How do we support it? Because the brain is the foundation of mental life and mental health. And so I really started then to work through the connections, the other, as well as nutrition, the other evidence-based lifestyle factors um, and habits that have been shown to be supportive for good brain health. And, and that's what I call whole body mental health. I, I don't think it makes sense to try to consider mental life as separate from the body. It doesn't, it, your, your brain is fed from everything you eat and the mm -hmm. things that you breathe in, the uh, the kind of um, metabolites of your, your gut microbiome. It doesn't make sense for us to think of them as separate and distinct. And so I'm trying to help people to think about themselves as an integrated organism that needs taken care of in all ways. And it's constant work, isn't it? It's a lifetime of work. Um, you know, it's, I guess, you know, never too late to change, never too early to begin. It's, it's mm -hmm. very interesting. And one thing that I always found quite interesting and maybe maybe my grounding in this it isn't any kind of loftiness or arrogance but i think i grew up sports obsessed and um you know only at like the age of 16 did i realize that Leeds united wasn't going to happen for me <laughs> my below <laughs> average football ability so i kind of switched to drawing footballers which led to a career as an illustrator i worked for a lot of sports clients but my that mm -hmm. love of sport what that did what that love of sport did was my curiosity and interest there you know it brought me this awareness of physical activities positive impact on men on mental health on the spirit mm. and the energy of our body um and all that stuff so i did have a little bit of a, of a of an awareness of it and therefore found it very surprising when people would either find themselves out of shape feeling lethargic or run down and it would seem to me that food would be the last part of call you know it was there was almost this denial and unwillingness to consider that it could be that you know it had mm -hmm. to be anything but that is that something you encounter often and i guess you hit up on it there but why do you think it is so uncomfortable to have these conversations about diet it really mm. is. yeah so i think uh, yes and no in terms of um the 
uh, hesitancy, reluctance to engage with these conversations. So certainly when I first started thinking and talking about this stuff, maybe a, it feels like close to a decade ago, maybe, certainly seven or so years ago. Um, and I would be talking to colleagues. I used to be a, a governor of a mental health trust, and I'd be talking to colleagues about this, you know, very interesting, impressive research that's showing these associations between diet quality and future risk of depression. And they do control for these other factors, and it does seem to hold out. And I would get, even from colleagues, kind of scoffful remarks. And it seemed to be partly about... Um, both the novelty and the ubiquity of food. So the novelty of the idea, and it was really a sense of, well, I've never heard of that, so it can't be true. And again, that comes back to the idea that we are mental health professionals and we've been trained, we are the experts in the brain and we know everything about how to, what causes depression. And we know it's your childhood or your difficulties, your stresses in your everyday life. Um, and that hadn't been part of the training, so it wasn't part of the kind of consciousness. Um, and then the other thing is the, not just the ubiquity of food but the the mundanity of food you know we we get up and we make all of these unconscious food choices and we've been eating food since the since the beginning of time and it just it's not a novel drug it's not a new molecule it's not a mushroom found in the himalaya like it's it's just the everyday food that we're eating and i think there's a uh, humans we love a bit of novelty and we love it to sound impressive and uh, fresh and scientific. And basically, it comes back to the same stuff people have been saying over and over again, which is vegetables and beans and whole grains and you know, making sure that you're getting the fundamental micronutrients that your brain needs. And I think to some extent, it's just not interesting enough. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not sexy enough um, for people to really have gotten bored with, certainly back then. I think things are changing and I think the research into the microbiome is one of the things that really helped create that shift and I think the thing about the microbiome is that it it did feel novel it did feel new and suddenly these bugs had something to do with it but fundamentally we're still talking about food and we're still talking about the body and its impact on the brain mm. and I guess we're almost to a degree we're victims of, of being quite spoiled you know in a in a in a, in a, in a country that has an abundance of mm. food choice and you know mm. we, um, you know, uh, incomes and poverty notwithstanding, yeah. we have relatively easy access to to food. So, therefore, it almost becomes this thing that you have to do to get on with the rest of your day. Yeah. When actually, when you look at the, the the seismic role it plays in your day to day efficiency and your mood and everything else, it's so much more, isn't it? Yes, and I think what's happened over time is that we have lost the reverence for food. You know, I think if, when you're, and I and I don't mean that we should all be kind of <laughs> bowing down to cabbages and stuff, but I think <laughs> there was, um, there was a sense in which food was the organising principle of the day, wasn't it? When we're thinking about either agrarian cultures, even hunter gatherers, the food was the organising principle. You know, we had to go out and find food, and then we had to come back together and prepare it because it took a group of people to be able to acquire adequate nutrition and then we shared it and it was around food that we formed the basis of culture and society and and we think to some extent sharing and knowledge and culture because there were 
things about the acquisition of food, knowing how to hunt, knowing how to track, that we had to learn, remember and teach to other members of the group. And I think over the years, and of course, some of this we should be grateful for, you know, we haven't, we don't have to work quite as hard for food, but it's meant that food has become a commodity. It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's lost its value. And we very, very much think about food now in terms of its impact on aesthetics. I think, will it make me fat? Will it make me thin? Maybe if you're a bit more enlightened, uh, will it help me live longer? You know, will it improve my longevity? Um, but we're not thinking about the fundamental thing, which is you are made of food. Every cell in your body is composed of the fragments of food that your mother ate when she was pregnant with you and that you've eaten ever since. And so you're fundamentally composed of the, of the food that you eat and therefore we should care about it. We really should. And it really, you know, what I found recently, I was already on a kind of an up, upward spike, my wife and I, in terms of improving our own diets, particularly since becoming parents. We were never, oh. ter- we were never terrible. Um, but it's just, you know, the things you learn, you gradually start to implement more and more. But I'm finding it incredibly rewarding now. You know, like before we spoke, there were the lunch, I took an hour to go and make my lunch. Whereas before reading your book, I would have, you know, I would have been a whirlwind trying to get mm-hmm. a hoover in and trying, you know, say, <laughs> and walking the dog. And then it's like getting to throw a piece of toast down my throat. And it's kind of like, it's like, no, no, actually, there's nuts and there's leafy greens and there's homemade hummus. And, and actually, by shifting that habit, we've become that's become part of what we do now. And it's actually a fun, mm-hmm. as you mentioned there, with the hunter-gatherer thing, a social activity. And it's something we involve the kids in. They, you know, we let them come and just have a stir of whatever and let, and let them be a part that's of that so that they enjoy that process. Mm. And they're more likely to engage with this maybe complex food for their age, you know. So there is something to be said about that and also about the community aspect of it all. Yeah, and I think also the only people who uh, win or kind of profit from the commodification of of food is is industry right the only people who profit from the idea that cooking is a waste of time and that really is the messaging you know literally don't cook just eat is the message (laughs) cooking is a waste of time um it's an inconvenience you could be doing something else maybe what you could be doing is working more you could be more productive if you didn't have to (laughs) cook and in fact you could be more productive if you didn't have to chew let's make meal replacement drinks so that you don't even have to take the time to chew the food you're consuming you can sit at your desk and taking enough calories to to not have to you know putting any of that additional effort and i think you know partly that's a response to the kind of labor conditions people are feeling more and more time pressed but i think partly it's it is straightforward marketing which is if we can uh position cooking as a time suck as a hindrance as something that gets in the way of your life and then we can provide you with alternatives and and solutions to the problems of cooking and and meal times um and and i think that's really been the direction of a lot of of food marketing over the last few years yeah, absolutely. And that, that leads us nicely into the sort of scenario that I wanted to present. And it's, mm. there are sort of two. So I've been a freelance illustrator for 15 years. And, you know, in amongst that, there's writing, there's podcasting, a mixed bag of things. So as freelancers, from that standpoint, you know, my audience is predominantly kind of artists, designers, illustrators. And what we have is this kind of this double-edged sword 
of we're very passionate about what we do. The vast majority of us did it for for pleasure long before we even considered or found out about this industry that we have mm-hmm. to make a living from it. But the downside of that is obviously a beautiful thing, but the downside of that is we get this kind of guilt that, oh my God, I've got this opportunity to do something I enjoy for a living. So I've got to give 24 seven to it. I've always got to be seen to be productive. And the downside of that is, you know, from an agency perspective, somewhere, you know, we, we all dash across the road and get pizzas. Mm-hmm. We run to Pret and get a sandwich and, and wolf it and we come back. And what I've been learning throughout this process of exploring creativity is about the need to kind of, to leave, not only leave space to digest the things we're putting into our senses, because without mm-hmm. allowing the unconscious to do its work, mm-hmm. I don't believe we can be truly creative. We can't arrive at those eureka moments. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect. There's the absolute overload. But then it's this vicious cycle because we're also very sensitive people. Um, so I recently I had talked to Jen Graneman, who's the co-author of a book called Sensitive, um, The Power of a Thoughtful Mind in an Overwhelming World. Absolutely incredible book, mm-hmm. goes deep into the science. And, you know, the whole thing about creativity is that we we are divergent thinkers and we join mm-hmm. the dots. So, of course, you know, my, I find myself with my brain pulling all these things together and underpinning all of it is nutrition, good rest and sympathy for that information overload, which is a real issue. fact that the, the predominant number of people in the creative industry are highly sensitive people which I believe accounts for 30% of, of humans, mm-hmm. you know, who soak in the world around them with a greater degree of color and everything else. And, and they're affected by all of the downsides of all of that. I mean, maybe we could talk about the creativity in the brain and the kind of hippocampus and the, and actually how that works. Would I be right in saying that memory and creativity are kind of linked within that region of the brain? Uh, I'm very, I'm very lame. <laughs> No, no, you are you are right, and and it seems to be particularly in the area of divergent thinking. So, you know, thinking outside of the box, and that in order to do that, you need a couple of conditions. You uh, broadly being relaxed is helpful. Um, of course, well rested and relaxed is helpful. Um, but also, you need to be able to combine unconsciously, usually. Uh, things that you know and are, are well acquainted with, with new information. And it's that synthesis of those two things that brings you to a new solution to a problem or a creative solution to a problem. And so you need to uh, in- engage with your memory. And the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is, you know, we consider the seat of many, m- memory. It's, it's about consolidation and organization of memory in the brain as well as small amounts of recall itself. What's interesting about this relationship between um, nutrition and the hippocampus is that it it seems to be pretty well established. We know that people who have a poorer overall dietary quality have a smaller hippocampi. So this part of the brain that is so important for learning memory and creativity seems to be impaired. We've seen intervention studies that have taken people who generally eat a healthy diet and have put them on a kind of Western style ultra processed diet for just a week. And they have seen impairments in learning a memory that is dependent on the hippocampus within that week. And it seems to be underpinned by a major impairment in the function of the hippocampus. So that this dietary pattern, which is increasingly common, seems to be associated with brain changes that impair our capacity for learning memory and this creative function. So it really would be a vicious cycle because 
you know, let's take a group of people who already have a kind of innate sense of creativity or capacity to engage with their creativity, but their brain isn't getting what it needs in order to engage with that. And if you end up feeling as if you're not generating, then that can affect self-esteem, that can affect the way that you think of your capacities, that might affect the quality of your work. And then, yeah, round and round and round we go. Yeah, and that and that's exactly it. And I think the thing is, again, it goes back to the work culture that you mentioned, the productivity oh. and the need to, you know, what we're finding, like any other industry, I suppose, at the moment, is that people are managing what should be two or three specialists' jobs in one role. Yes. So not only are they given this kind of unreasonable workload, but it's also a, it's a neglect, and dare I say it, a foolish oversight by the people who run any company or any client who is putting these kind of demands surely it's the classic thing where actually with six effective hours and a good lunch and a good break you're going to get more out of those people in terms of creativity and genuinely good valuable and to put it in their language fiscally rewarding idea <laughs> than someone who's working 10 hours but is doing what i said running across the pret or is stressed and burned out and over yeah. and doubting their abilities it's kind of crazy we almost need yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose it's it's exactly what you're doing, Kimberly, isn't it? It's working to try and challenge that culture and to look at the human, you know, the, the morality and the human the human side of this. Yeah, I think, and it's it's very very difficult, you know. It's very the idea that we can perhaps go back to a kind of you know, ancient Greece where people had uh, patronages and we just funded artists to have a very quiet, lovely life <laughs> would be lovely. Um, it seems unlikely, but we certainly need to, I think, move away from the idea that not just uh, creative industries, but any human is just a unit of production that you can put someone in a room and squeeze productivity and outcomes out of them without giving them the opportunity to recover, to refuel, to restock, to rest. Um, and, and, and imagine that that's going to be a sustainable way to live like it's just it's it's just an unreasonable expectation um and what's interesting is i think we've been sold it so much that a lot of people don't realize it's an unreasonable expectation and i will often see people that they will come to me and they will say you know i should be able to do this i don't know why i'm so tired or you know somebody else sitting next to me is managing to do this and this and this and I, I, I very often have said, listen, it's not you, it's London. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the expectations um, of just industry in general, but I think big competitive urban uh, cities like London, which are also very transient, they're very competitive. People come in essentially to London they try and you know make a name for themselves. They try to make some money and then they leave so that you don't have the community. You don't have the opportunity to get to know people. You're constantly, I think, I think, uh, hypervigilant and slightly anxious. And so there are lots of ways in which the expectations of the world make it very difficult for us to understand that these are just unreasonable demands that have been made on us. And that part of the thing we have to do is to say you know what is what is the limit what is the boundary what am i what am i capable of and what do i have to let go that's the really really difficult thing yeah yeah well yes 
very very much so it's been a i think that you know there are, there are improvements i know a lot of agencies now work great actually with their staff a lot more flexible working a lot more four-day weeks a lot more you know sympathy to human needs mm-hmm. and it's and it pays off dividends that you know you find time and time again that those agencies come out on top in terms of staff satisfaction um you know relationships with clients and everything else it's not it's not too complex but it just takes change mm. um I, I read a book by ken robinson so ken robinson and um he mentions he was talking about the brain and the kind of regions within and, mm-hmm. and it really made me laugh when he said that you know he said yeah, okay look that the area that is responsible for speech is also linked to creativity and 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 math uh, you know mathematics skills he said however you know if you take out that region of the brain that's responsible for music musical ability it's not just it's not going to hum a tune you know and his point his point was that the brain functions <laughs> as one so this brings mm. us back to the this kind mm. of the idea of brain health so again yeah i find that very interesting about the hippocampus but essentially and again to separate the brain from the body is, is also futile isn't it and, and, yeah. and this is the point of your work um so about the impact on, on cognition and mood because these are two fundamental pillars of creativity mm-hmm. you could be the most artistically gifted person on the planet but if you're in a foul mood all the time <laughs> <laughs> or you're run down you're not going to be able to fire are you and you're going to be cutting corners and, and operating on minimums um and you mentioned the microbiome earlier. Mm. I wonder if we could just get into that a little bit and its impact on, on, on mood. Okay. So it's you know, lots of different places. Let me see if I can say something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, you know, with the caveat that we know optimistically about 1% of what there is to learn about the microbiome and its impact on the organism as a whole and maybe the brain uh, in particular for our purposes um some of the initial some of what we do know already is very very interesting um so there does seem to be an association that's been demonstrated pretty robustly in in animal studies where they will use a a breed of of mouse or rat that is has a sterile gut and then you know compare various um interventions with a mouse that a wild type mouse um that has a microbiome um and there seems to be these associations between uh gut microbiota composition you know the diversity or the types and strains of microbes that are in the gut and not just a function of the brain so tendency to anxiety and depression but also some structural shifts in the brain as well that what the early microbiome either uh, in utero or very, very soon after birth seems to be able to affect the way that the brain cells connect with one another. Um, how that happens is a, there are a few different hypotheses. So one is uh, about the metabolites, the things that your gut microbiome produces when you eat foods. And some of those things are precursors to neurotransmitters. So things like GABA and GABA is you can think of it as the um, almost a relaxant of the brain. GABA is kind of chill, relax, it's cool. So your gut microbiome can produce precursors to GABA um, that can cross into the bloodstream um, and perhaps make it into circulation and, and then cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, there are other neurotransmitters, things like serotonin, that are produced by the gut microbiome, but the, it's worth 
saying very explicitly that the serotonin that's produced in the gut, we don't think it can cross, it can't cross into the brain. Um, it stays pretty much more local and uh, is about kind of gut motility. There might be a question about whether it is affecting the nerves in your gut and whether that can signal to the brain. Um, but that still see, needs to be to be seen. But certainly, short chain fatty acids, precursors to neurotransmitters, vitamins, these things are being produced and they many of them can cross um, into the bloodstream and, and into the brain. The other effect that the microbiome can have is on, st on the stress system. So it seems that the microbiome can affect that HPA axis and how you respond to stress. And the important thing about that is that when you're stressed, your cognition changes because stress is an indicator of threat or a challenge that you have to face. What happens when you're stressed is that your focus narrows. You, you, you know, you're not looking at it, things expansively. You're focusing on just one tiny little thing and you're probably t focusing on the threat in order to protect yourself. But what that stops you from being able to do is to allow your mind to wander and to be a bit more open and and um contemplative you know so there's and of course the microbiome the the, the most uh, the fastest way to shift the composition and diversity of your microbiome is through your food exercise does it as well stress does it as well there's a bi-directional relationship between stress and the microbiome um obviously getting ill if you get a gut bug that will do it as well but in terms of the kind of deliberate and and swift changes you can make again it's the food that you eat is is doing a lot of the heavy lifting yeah well what, what's interesting here and this is something i found you mentioned about the sheer speed that the shift from a kind of more mediterranean diet to a western diet can, mm. we can see adverse changes i would guess that that and i would guess that that is reflected in quite quickly tangible positive results if we change for the better is that correct Yes. So what's been demonstrated in, in particular is, uh, and there was a, a study I think done towards the end of last year, where they compared the impact of a high fibre diet on, on gut, micro, gut microbiome composition um, and or a high fermented food diet. And what they found was that in terms of increasing diversity, the fermented foods Within a couple of weeks, and, and, and other studies have shown that dietary changes can work within 48 hours or something like that. Um, within, you know, the, the, a very short time frame, you can shift the, meaningfully shift the composition of the microbiome. Um, and I suppose the broader point to that is that in evolutionary terms, we have very rapidly shifted the kinds and diversity of the foods that we eat. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of edible plants on the planet, but something like 12 foods uh, as a combination of plants and animals make up 75% of the of the world's diet. So we really narrowed the diversity of the foods that we would be eating. And and certainly the the belief is that we have have we've had some species extinction in terms of our gut microbiome because we just don't feed it the foods that that evolved Um fermenting and consuming wow that's it that's yeah <laughs> it's wild my world yeah um confidence is something i wanted to touch on because mm. it, i think it's something that's dramatically misunderstood um you know we have this i think it i think it might have been your your own appearance on the blind buy podcast I'm a, but that's initially where i came across you actually mm -hmm. and i love that show mm -hmm. and you mentioned you know you 
the example he gave there was a friend who wanted to be a photographer and mm-hmm. he saw these other music photographers and, and bought into this idea that there was a certain type of person who was yeah. confident enough to do that job and and so on. That's something that's very common in our industry. There's a lot of imposter syndrome, particularly since the advent of social media. You know, we we see these okay. well-presented examples of, and again, that goes speaks to broader life, doesn't mm. it? Um, and with mental illness on the rise at the moment, also, I think this leads into. Um, would you mind just giving us your definition of confidence? Because I found it um, incredible. Thank you. I love talking about confidence because you're absolutely right. We have this real misnomer. Uh, and and wrong false beliefs about confidence that it is a a god-given uh, quality if you're born with it well done congratulations you've you've won the confidence lottery and if you haven't rah, rah, like sad times for you we're just gonna have to like cross our fingers and hope that you can limp your way through life and that's not the case at all um for me and the way that i define it confidence is your brain's ability to predict a positive outcome. And it's really about prediction. Your brain involved as a prediction machine. You do not engage with life on a moment to moment response basis. It would take too long. It would take too much energy. It, there's too much information coming into you at all times for you to be responding to it bit by bit. So what your brain does is to condense it. You know, after a little while of living, you, you start your brain starts to work out well this is useful information this is relevant and this stuff is just irrelevant the birds cheeping irrelevant the sound of you know people chattering behind me irrelevant so it kinds of just mass ignores it um and so you're largely living in prediction because your brain is saying well we've been here before this is what's likely to happen this saves me energy. And the only thing that I have to do is course correct if my prediction is incorrect, if the prediction is wrong. So your brain evolved to predict and everything comes out of that. And so what happens with confidence when you think of it as a response to prediction is actually what you need to do is build up enough examples, statistical points, pieces of data for your brain to be able to know that the next time you try something, you're likely to have a positive outcome. And so the example that I I use, not in the book, in the, I think a, a post that I did is, um, let's say you live uh, in a little town and you've got a little corner shop by the corner of you and it's very, very, very well stocked. The last 99 times that you went to that corner shop, they had exactly the kind of milk that you like. Um, and then I pop over and uh, you offer me a cup of tea, but you're out of milk. And I ask you, okay, I'll pop down to the shop. How likely is it? How confident are you that when I go to the shop, there will be milk there? And you're likely to say, oh, no, they'll definitely have milk. Because based on the 99 previous examples, you're making a prediction that they will have milk. In reality, you have no real sense the shop could be closed they could be on holiday there could have been some weird tiktok trend which means that all the milk is gone like in reality you don't know that there is definitely milk but you are confident in your prediction that they will have stock based on your previous experience and so when it comes to something like producing a good piece of work having a good outcome um public speaking really it's about building up practice confidence is practice tiny incremental improvements 
tiny incremental um, opportunities that build up to tell your brain, we've done this enough times to predict that the next time we'll be able to do it. That is confidence. Confidence is just practice. Mm. And the reason I brought that up is because it goes back to the, the gut microbiome thing, because it's, it's, it's this incredible loop, this ecosystem, where if that's not right, again, sorry about my layman terms, <laughs> that's not right, and you're irritable or lethargic or tired or whatever mm. the adverse impacts of um, subpar nutrition might be, then even with all that, if your body is telling you something different, then confidence can plummet. And I guess th- does that lead into balance and effective states? Because that was mm. another thing that blew my mind. Yeah. So, um, yes, because the other thing uh, that we have to know about cognition and decision making and emotion, and again, this emotion, if we come emotion and mood and creativity, there is a loop there. Um, is that again, it's not just neck up. Your cognition and your moods, your emotions are a synthesis between what is happening in your body, often unconscious signals from your body, sometimes conscious ones, but often unconscious, and how your brain interprets them. And so, for example, a conscious signal um, might be something like having a stone in your shoe. Um, and you might be, the sun might be shining. You know, you might be having a lovely time, but you, you're if you have a stone in your shoe and there's a kind of piece of physical discomfort, it's quite, it's quite hard to be in a good mood. You'll be irritated. You'll be a bit agitated and a bit listless until you get the stone out of your shoe. So that's an example of how the situation, the environment, the conditions of your life could be absolutely fine. Physiological, this physical discomfort is creating what we call negative valence, a sense of unpleasantness in your body that your brain has to make sense of. And your brain makes sense of it by creating an instance of negative mood, of being irritated. And then you you get rid of it and you're feeling fine. Um, But that often happens also, of course, all the time unconsciously. So if you're hungry, particularly if you're coming down with something, some of the earliest indicators of um, coming down with a virus is a shift in mood, more depressive states, um, maybe a bit more anxiety for some people. And again, that's because your body is tr- your body is sending your brain signals, something is wrong, something is wrong. And until you are physically ill, consciously kind of ill, it's not running down your nose or anything like that, then your brain is just saying, something is wrong. I'm not sure what it is. Or maybe we're worried about that work that we have to do next week. Or maybe there's something wrong in our relationship that we're just trying to avoid. Or maybe maybe we're no good. Your brain will try to find something to hang that discomfort on. And again, this is another reason why it's so important to try to do what you can to ensure that your body is in a good physiological state. And that, of course, includes nutrition, but exercise is really important in terms of uh, creating positive valence. Sleep is absolutely essential in terms of both the sense of valence, but also making sure that your executive functions, your memory, your impulse control, your goal-directed behaviours are are online. If you can do what you can to make sure your body is in a good physical state, then you can try to increase the likelihood that the signals that your body is sending to your brain are good ones. We're doing good here. Things are great. Well done. Keep going which then contribute to a good sense of mood, uh, perhaps relaxation, and those then create the qualities 
either for well-being or in this conversation creativity mm. you know you, you know, again the sleep thing and I, um mm. as a parent of young twins <laughs> things are a little better now and the, and the difference is profound i've i've been very fortunate and i've never really suffered much with mental health issues mm. i've got such an empathy for that and i've done a lot of work with charities like Karma and mm-hmm. self-initiated campaigns because I just feel very blessed that I've got the belonging and the, the the empowerment that I have through being a part of this wonderful creative industry and having an outlet for any negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. But the only time I've come close, and it was in the last year or so, and it was predominantly to do with the climate crisis, very sensitive person, very aware of that, and, and, mm-hmm. I, and as a new parent, it began to get me down. And sleep was a major factor because mm-hmm. I was so... Um, not not even so much sleep deprived, but more the broken nights and the kind of the disruption to that pattern. So I was operating on much more of a minimum in terms of my ability to compartmentalize or to to look at things in a way, you know, where can I do anything about anything about it? Yeah. Or, or working out the ways that I can address a problem, mm-hmm. work through the insurmountable. All this stuff I know, and on a good day, very happy, I'm fine with it. I can manage it. But but it's the closest I came to feeling depressed in recent times. Um, and sleep was right there at the core of it. Luckily, we managed to keep our diets on track. We were very mm-hmm. aware of the need to, to be hydrated and everything else. And this is advice I now give to new parents. But sleep, my word, it's hard to overstate, isn't it? The, you, uh... you can't overstate it. Sleep is the cornerstone of psychological well-being for so, so, so many reasons. Um we know, I mean, so many things go wrong when you're underslept. So impaired, there's a, first of all, there's a bi-directional relationship between impaired sleep and your risk of mental uh, health conditions, such that um, things like depression and psychosis and so forth can impair your sleep, but poor sleep can also increase your risk of developing those conditions. Um, we know that poor sleep uh, affects your mood regulation and that's both the tendency to feel very very low but also sometimes if you're chronically poor slept I don't know if you've ever had it a slightly manic state where you're a bit hyperactive and you can't focus and you're a bit all over the place yeah. so we call that mood lability where your mood rapidly cycles uh, between highs and lows um, you make more rigid and riskier decisions when you're underslept so there's a sense in which you revert to type and you can just imagine that your your poor brain is just working so hard to keep you going that it doesn't have the extra kind of energy or capacity to be flexible in its thinking or more creative in, in its thinking. Um, and so you're te- you'll, you'll lose fundamentally, you'll lose creativity when you're underslept. Um, but also, yeah, you, you lose insight. So you don't realize how impaired your thinking is. And that's why something like drowsy driving is such a risk. You don't realize that you're impaired as much as you would be if you were drunk mm-hmm. because you've lost that insight to, to where you are. And then in, in the chronic phase, uh, poor sleep can really start to almost corrode. I mean, the, the study, um, that I read says that chronic poor sleep can lead the brain to kind of cannibalize itself. It starts to really break down the synapses. So uh, there nothing, and, and this is, again, when people come to see me and they might be complaining about, and I mean complaining in the kind of uh, psychological sense, not just whining. <laughs> <laughs> Their concern is uh, maybe around depression or maybe not even that, just kind of listlessness in life. 
where we start is sleep because nothing else is going to hit or hold if you're underslept. We could be doing, I could be the world's best therapist. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, and it, but it wouldn't matter what intervention we're getting if your brain is not in the condition to be able to make use of it. And so it's about setting up those conditions, making sure effectively, if you think of, of therapy or any kind of intervention as the seeds, making sure you've got fertile neurological soil for those seeds to be sown into. Um, and so sleep is where we start every time. Yeah, it's um, it's huge. And and I, another little thing on the mood thing I wanted to touch upon, mm. the kind of the <laughs> hangry. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's thrown around very flippantly, but it's mm. really not as I came to learn in your book. And um, and and really what I found really sad was that, the, the, you know, the statistics about all the anecdotal accounts of teachers who were having to kind of compensate for their children's lack of a good breakfast mm. just to get them learning. And that that brought my heart to hear that. I thought, oh, my word, you know, that's 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 terrible. And yeah, it's so um, much lost potential. It's yes. so much and you I see it I see it a lot I see it in my own circles I see it in broader circles in terms of you know the behavior of children and things that going back to what you said earlier about the quick positive or adverse impacts of a shift in diet can have it's it's criminal isn't it that mm. is, that there isn't more attention public information um and provision for those young people because and I, and I think you've you referenced this um there's that kind of i'm going to say a pig-headed attitude that oh but if the parents you know can't provide you that we'll not get into that but it's, it's incredibly frustrating <laughs> um mm -hmm. but that shouldn't fall on the children should it this is we all as a population have a responsibility to raise the next generation who are going to be our next doctors and next whatever mm -hmm. we see valuable in society mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what my question is, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, so the one that jumped out to me was it ninety percent of young offenders had below average language ability. Yeah, I, I've done. I've had people on the show that have been worked in young, um, secure children's institutes, mm -hmm. and I specifically wanted to find out about the work they did and and what I what you tend to find is that the work there is actually phenomenal. So they start to get cooking lessons going on gardening um you know social activities to do around the arts and whatever and their results of re reformation are actually quite incredible therefore why is this not happening sooner and what can we do about that <laughs> <laughs> so um there are okay there are lots of reasons i think that we're not doing this sooner um I think, first of all, well, my broad underlying belief is that um, prison functions as society's unconscious in as far as it's where we put the things we don't want to think about. It's where we can project the darkest aspects of our own psyche. We can quietly say to ourselves, I would never do that. I'm a good person. I've made the right decisions. And that group of deplorables over there, they're the ones that are the problem. So I think uh, on a psychological level, prison prisoners, offenders 
provide a, a psychological function for the kind of social unconscious. Um, and that gets in the way of sympathy, empathy, and compassion. When you're, when you're saying, oh, I'm nothing like that person over there, when part of your view of yourself is about being very different from this group of people, then you fundamentally can't have empathy because what your, your organizing principle is to be different from them. And empathy means putting yourselves in, yourself in someone else's shoes. So <laughs> I think from that, what we get is this kind of attitude, which is they deserve it or their parents should have tried harder or they, you know, pick yourself on, up from your bootstraps or um, I had it hard as well. And I'm not like that. A kind of washing the hands of of an entire group of people. Um, I think it provides an underclass that people can look down upon. Um, and I think also what it allows people to conveniently forget because when we think about offenders we think about grown-ups dangerous men and women and what we conveniently forget is that they were children once they were little babies uh, innocent vulnerable and for the most part largely unprotected mm -hmm. um that i consider prison when i was working in prisons it was you could see from people's histories they had no chance of being anywhere else yeah, there was not a chance when your when your parent introduced you to the crack pipe. You had no chance of being anywhere else. Um, and so, what it means, what thinking of prisoners as dangerous adults allows society to do is to not think about the number of children in the UK who are suffering, um, who are vulnerable, who are being harmed, who are being at risk. Because I think. We find that so unbearable that we would rather not think about it. Mm -hmm. And and the people who you refer to, um, the young people who've suffered gross unkindness, abuse, um, poverty, they. All that said, what I've found, and through the people who, whether whether it's the people I've interviewed, the people I've read about who directly work with those people, is that it really doesn't take a lot. To start to turn things around because they've had so little so we're not talking about you know massive budgets and and, and huge overhauls and and changes that we all need to down tools to do everything i recently interviewed a guy called mac ferrari who founded bike storms i'm not sure if you're aware mm -hmm. of bike storms but mac lost something like 20 of his friends to murder um growing up through gang violence in london turned his life around he always had an older head on his shoulders and what he wanted to do was save the young people who were likely to follow the same path um with something better something different so at the time he was riding motorbikes on a dirt track with uh with friends and this had this community he decided that through mountain bikes because all these kids were hanging around watching on the outside with their mountain bikes and he saw them doing these incredible tricks and flips mm -hmm. and else that he could make that his youth club and take that to the streets. And Mac, along with Jake 100, who was also a founder and is now taking over Bike Storms, have transformed this into a cultural movement where there are Tony Hawk-like characters in there who get this worldwide recognition. And the community and the feel-good factor and the upward surge that has happened just through Mac's hard work and dedication is utterly inspiring. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, and for the work of the friend I mentioned in the, you know, the the young people's offense. offense institutions it doesn't take a lot a little kindness a little love a little bit of work to get them back on board in terms of trusting adults because why mm -hmm. would they when you mentioned there like a crack pipe where's the trust going to be it's not going to be there and then of course 
nutrition, a little bit of good food to start to work with those moods and everything that we've talked about today. I think that it's innately possible. I think it's really possible. Doesn't it's take very possible. And that's the enormously frustrating thing about it is that even if you couldn't, and you're absolutely right, that um, one of the big challenges uh, in prison and trying to be a therapist in prison is that you're inviting someone, you're asking someone to trust you who has never had a reliable relationship before in their lives, a reliable, safe relationship. So that's an enormous challenge. And that's probably the biggest challenge, because after that, once you've demonstrated your reliability and your care, then then often someone is, you know, very, very motivated to demonstrate to themselves that they are worthy of that care. And they, you know, all they've wanted is an opportunity to often demonstrate what they think or have felt or suspected they are capable of. Um, and in terms of, of nutrition, it doesn't even need in, I mean, it would be ideal if we could overhaul prison nutrition, but there are vested interests. <laughs> um, but we know from the prison studies that, uh, Huge changes can be made through supplementation because this is a population where there is very, very poor nutrition and a basically they fall under the RDA of every single nutrient except omega-6 fatty acids. Um, and so supplementation makes a big difference when you have evidence of deficiency. So we have evidence of deficiency and we know that supplementation, broad spectrum, vitamins and minerals, improves mental health in prisons and it's very cheap. You know, it's a very, very cheap intervention that could have uh, positive outcomes on offender mental health, but also then on rates of self-harm, rates of assaults on staff, staff retention, staff morale, all of that sort of stuff. But again, coming back to my original hypothesis is... Um, I think, and certainly around election cycles, what people don't want to be seen to be doing is being soft on criminals. It's important to be seen to be tough on crime and improving the nutritional status of prisoners perhaps wouldn't appeal to our desire for vengeance and, and all of that. And so we just don't do it. Well, it's easier to invent a word like walk, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, it is, and, and rather than anyone who's doing any good with it, you know, rather than just look at the evidence and see that the path we have been on, this tough on crime path, mm -hmm. even in the government's own impact assessments, doesn't work. It makes things worse. Sentences have been getting longer and longer. We still have world-beating recidivism rates. What we've been doing doesn't work. We know that, and so to keep doing the same thing that we know doesn't work <laughs> and expecting a different outcome is. Yeah. is wild and it kills me because there's just such um that i'm a big believer in that kind of mischief mischievous might be the wrong word mischievous prickly energy that you tend to find in people who've had that kind of struggle in their lives if you can find a conduit for that yeah. it's, it's nuclear you know it's it's unbelievable i mean yeah. i i i had a gary mansfield who spent a long time in prison on the show and he turned his life around through art so he only started doing art in prison because he couldn't get a place on the it course mm -hmm. um but he he's got the most incredible sense of humor he does fantastic projects now around identity and what he used to do was write to the young british artists in the mid 90s from prison and they would mm -hmm. send him their monograph and he got incredibly inspired by all this and it was his catalyst to turn things around to get out of prison and to build something better for himself mm -hmm. but gary's energy 
and uh, he's just uh, he's magnetic and it's great. And I just think if you could do that with all those people and put that money into education, but then what do I know? I'm you know I'm spouting walk nonsense. So (laughs) 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 you're you're absolutely right. Not just the energy, but also an incredible capacity in in my experience to read people because Mm -hmm. they've often had to kind of. hustle and and or to keep themselves safe the the people that i worked with just had this incredible incisive insight i mean they could have all been therapists frankly um but yeah as i said it's a a huge loss of potential yeah well i don't want to keep you much longer kimberly Mm. we've covered so many great things um i do just want to ask you what's the what's the big vision because your book is is incredible and i hope it goes on to become bigger than you know you probably you might imagine it i don't know i don't know but what is what is the dream what's the vision what would you like to see happen in terms of all the great work you've been doing um if i could narrow it down into two <laughs> manifesto <laughs> points i i i would want free universal free school meals um to all children um, I think, A, it's just a compassionate thing to do. If we think desks and chairs and exercise books are essential for learning, so is a brain that is online, well-nourished um, and able to focus. Uh, so I think free school meals is the easiest way to improve attendance, attention, school grades, uh, reduce fights in in, in, in play, uh, reduce the sense of difference and stigma universal free school meals would be a great thing for the entire nation not just the poorer children the entire country um i would love to see better nutrition in prisons and even at the very least an implementation of the outcome of the prison studies that i talk about in the book um and maybe i have to limit my ambitions to that i think if i if we manage to do either of those i would consider my work done i would quietly retire and just make jam <laughs> and quietly in my kitchen and stop harassing people stop being an irritant <laughs> but what but what i've come to realize is that there and we talk and we talked about cycles quite a lot in this show but i think that it gives me great heart to come across the work by people like yourself and like Jen Graneman, who I mentioned about sensitivity, because block by block, I start to see that I'm not alone in my own pursuit of seeing creativity elevated in our society. And I don't speak of bohemian artists or the Greek Renaissance or anything like <laughs> that. What I'm talking about is the ability for young people to learn how to express themselves and come together over something they're passionate about at an early age and to see the world and critical thinking and all the things. But when you put that next to your work and next to Jen Graneman's work and you start to realise that there are a lot of people doing great work around really important things in society. So, you know, like like you said, I, I had to learn to narrow my own focus to avoid some kind of mental catastrophe, quite honestly, because every day I wanted to do something about whatever it was that was landed in my inbox from whichever petition site I was getting that was breaking my heart. Yeah. I had to kind of just close off a little bit and I had to, and I re, but I realized that creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness. And therefore, you know, I thought, okay, well, what a great cause. Let's find a singular focus. But, but what's beautiful there is we guess, okay, you and I, we have this kind of singular or double barrel focus, mm-hmm. but it just links up with so many other great bits of work that should make us feel less alone. And I would implore anyone who's listening from that, you know, the creative industry to recognize that. 
that actually that's one of the upsides. We mentioned the downsides, social media, in some regards at least. Um, you know, there's huge upsides to the connectivity mm. through technology, and we can find each other's work and you know yeah. do that great work that we're that we're spending the time doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's lovely, and I think the word that came to mind while you were talking about is that we're 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 both and and many others in this area are committed to human flourishing. You know, yes. the opportunity for people to live up to their best potential to tackle the big problems of the world you need good brains that are able to focus pay attention think creatively and that starts it starts in utero um but it starts as early as possible with good nutrition and compassion and care very much so and just the last thing i wanted to mention because i was aware as i read as i read your book it was very um incredible as it is it felt times felt a little complex and okay. overwhelming um, mm-hmm. and that's not a, that's not a criticism or, or a negative thing but for anyone who's feeling that with some of the things we've talked about today, mm. not microbiome and everything else mm. your last chapter was was wonderful in terms of what should i eat and you <laughs> get a great kind of um you know in a nutshell uh here's what your body needs and your brain to function healthily um but really it's it's just a, it's a fun uh, invigorating informative read and i just thought that that was a great way to round it up and uh, so anyone who's listening in might feel Thank a little you. flustered by all the things we've talked about i would highly recommend reading it and it's it's really not it's not overwhelming it's just um you know it's quite life-changing actually for me wow thank mm. you no, thank no, you i mean that and that's not just platitudes because we're on <laughs> i don't really lie to anyone on this show it's you know no one's policing it it's just me <laughs> but it's um but I haven't had an, I've had about two naps in the last two weeks, and I, and it used to be a daily a daily necessity because I would be nodding off my desk at two pm, mm-hmm. and I know that's common, but once again I didn't join the dots. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't start to look at what I was having for lunch, what I shouldn't be having at lunch, and since I've changed that, even with a few bad nights, you know, and my energy is so much better. So thank you. Awesome. <laughs> You're very 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 welcome. Yes, and and if anybody does find anything confusing or overwhelming, just head over to my Instagram. Drop me a DM. I will answer questions. I love answering questions and we can hopefully clarify and simplify and, and make something practical and implementable for you. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much, Kimberly. And My absolute joy, pleasure. Joy, a joy to chat and uh, yeah, keep on the great work. Thank you so much. And you take good care. Thank you so much to Kimberly Wilson for taking the time to have this conversation today about food about whole body mental health. I hope you found that as interesting as I did because I thought that was bloody fascinating. Not gonna lie. Really, really real, real favorite of mine so far. And I really have doubled down on my diet and I recommend you do the same because it's really, really helped with my drive, my creativity, my just my daily happiness as well. Not gonna lie, it's really equipped me to manage the challenges in my life so, like, so much better. And I don't know why this comes as a revelation at 40 years old. Not even a revelation. I was I was always aware of it, but as something that I needed to action here now at 40. Anyway, it's helped so much. So do it, guys. Get Kimberly's book, Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis is Essential. I did it as an audio book because I was um, under siege with my young twins and busy with work, and I was able to consume it in the studio. And I just sat there taking so many notes, and in the end I thought, you know what, screw it, I need to email Kimberly and try my luck. And she said, yeah, so there you have it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, do check out the founding sponsors of the show, illustrationx.com, for all their global range of illustration and animation professionals, all those portfolios. They look fantastic. 
And do please consider supporting the Creative Condition book on the Kickstarter. You can do so now. Just follow the bio link on my Instagram or head to my Twitter or my LinkedIn or just drop me an email, hello at bentallen.com for a chit chat and I'll tell you all about it. Thank you to those who've pledged so far. It means the world. This is my life's cause. Cheers, guys. Have an awesome week. Stay creative.